I cannot swear to you that there is swearing on this show, but there might be. It's the kind of behavior I engage in. It's Wednesday, March 4th, 2020. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. If I said, what are the elements of a successful campaign, political campaign? You might say things like inspiring new voters, ground game, which is to say, you know, having and hiring staff who gets the old folks to the polls or knocking on doors to remind undeciders to get out there and vote. You'd probably say take some success in public speaking and maybe having big rallies or at least intimate, well-done small rallies. You should do lots of commercials or at least a few commercials, but they got to be punchy. And you might also sigh and say, yeah, it also depends on raising money. But then you'd think of free media and say, or, you know, winning debates and doing lots of interviews where your points come across clearly or even just a few interviews, but where you do a really great job. And, you know, This isn't objective like the size of a rally, but you might say it's good to have a clear message. Clarity of message is important. A candidate who is consistent in his or her beliefs, a candidate who doesn't equivocate. You do want to be a candidate with readily identifiable beliefs and you want the public to believe that you believe those beliefs. Oh, and if we poll on those beliefs, they should be popular. Which is to say that I find it interesting that by everything I laid out about what you might say, oh yeah, that's that's a good campaign, that's a good campaigner, that's how to win an election. By everything I laid out, Bernie Sanders did better than Joe Biden on every one of those metrics, every single one. And by those metrics, I think I mean all the metrics. Now, you may say, oh, you're leaving out endorsements, but there's great debate within political science if endorsements actually mean anything. There's pretty good research that say that all endorsements do is really symbolize other tangible things like fundraising success and media impressions. But on every meaningful metric that political science has identified as actually moving the needle in elections, Bernie Sanders was the better candidate than Joe Biden. Of course, Biden is more centrist, and that is good, the political science says, in a general election. A centrist, a more centrist candidate generally has the advantage, but not always in a primary. So which I got to say, Super Tuesday was a crazy result. Think about football. You know, every successful football team doesn't have to have a great run game and a great pass game and a great defense and great special teams. But a great team, heck, a winning team has to have some of that. And maybe you could say, all right, all right, unless you commit so many turnovers, you could negate being worse than the other team in all other aspects. But here's the thing. If you want to talk about political turnovers, it was Biden who committed them all. He botched the Declaration of Independence. He claimed to have been arrested with Nelson Mandela. I know. After Trump beat Hillary, there was the notion that, oh, this is all crazy. No rules apply. Untrue. Lots of rules applied. Trump had the more energized base. Trump had a theory of the electorate. That theory depended on stoking emotional responses. That usually works. Yes, the emotional response was race-based fear, but it worked. Hillary was also being investigated by the FBI a week before the election. That's usually bad for a candidate's chances. And Trump had some electoral college advantages baked in. So Trump did have these major disqualifiers like his personality and, you know, his uh, his rhetoric. But he also had a bunch of things, a bunch of metrics that were going for him. And this was just not true with Joe Biden. He just had one big thing, one major truth that made him more appealing than Bernie to the vast majority of Democrats. And it was this. Democrats 
were more comfortable with Joe Biden and uncomfortable with Bernie Sanders, and literally nothing else mattered. That was it. Everything else, wash it away, comfort level was all. And when I say by Democratic voters, yeah. I mean, all the pundits are right. He had great strength in the black community. Guess what? They're core Democratic voters. And Bernie Sanders had a lot of interest among young kids, but they don't show up as much, and they didn't with him either. And Bernie Sanders got all the socialists very excited. Socialists aren't Democratic voters. Now, I want to say something else that's un- that was undergirding, apparently undergirding, a lot of the reason why Democrats were more comfortable with Biden. And it was their belief that Biden will be a better candidate in the general election against Trump. I don't, I don't know that there's much evidence this is true. It might be true. I just don't think there's a ton of evidence that argues for him over Bernie as the better general election candidate. And here's why. Biden's policies are better than Bernie's in terms of a general election, just winning. I've, I've made that point. But as a presenter of his own agenda, I think Biden is really lacking. Because you hear Biden's opponents criticize him, and it's usually based on policy. Oh, he wrote a crime bill back in 94, a popular and effective crime bill that Bernie voted for. But that's a major talking point against him. Or they try to punish these small transgressions like his hair sniffing habit, which is weird, but the vast majority of voters didn't really care about it. The Democrats never highlight What is Joe Biden's glaring weakness? And all Trump ever does is go after his opponent's glaring weakness. Joe Biden is experiencing cognitive decline. It's noticeable. Bernie seems not to be. Trump is going to hit Biden on that every day for the next eight months. And unlike Burisma or some other nonsense, he will have a point. I also don't know that Biden will have a positive effect on down-ballot races. That's another reason why voters seem to have been maybe more comfortable with him. I mean, there's some evidence because the people who are down-ballot of him, a lot of the freshmen in the House who beat Republicans, they want Joe Biden to be the candidate. So let's take that as a data point. But remember in 2016, they said this about Trump. Why don't you ask Russ Feingold how big the negative Trump effect was on Ron Johnson in the Wisconsin Senate race about Trump's effect on down-ballot races. So this was overall a weird, weird election night. It's been a weird election. It was pretty much a defensive vote by most voters. My state didn't vote and hasn't voted yet. And if it was down to the choice of Bernie and Biden, I would probably vote for Biden too. But I'm more ambivalent about that than I am about this next statement. This is no way to run an election. Luckily, Michigan, Washington, Missouri, Mississippi, and Idaho, and North Dakota, they get to do it all again in less than a week. On the show today in the spiel, let us analyze the Super Tuesday candidates who did not do so super on Tuesday. Bloomberg, Warren, and definitely not one word spent on Tulsi Gabbard. But first, luckily you have me to analyze election results. There are a few other pundits out there, so I've heard but not Chris Matthews. No more. The hardball is in the dirt. Wild pitch. Matthews stepped down as an MSNBC host because the Washington Post reports his bosses came to believe that every time he was given access to a microphone, he risked embarrassing the network. However, it was the things he said largely off microphone that were the proximate cause of his demise. He was constantly talking about how women looked on his show, in the public eye, sometimes on camera. So what next is the host of What Next TBD, Lizzie O'Leary, 
who has written about and tweeted about all the crap she, as a woman in TV news, has had to put up with. Lizzie O'Leary up next. A couple days ago, Chris Matthews uh, left his post at MSNBC saying the younger generation is improving the workplace with better standards than we grew up with, fairer standards. And then he said that compliments and a woman's appearance that he once thought were okay were never okay. Okay, fine, but he's still gone. Lizzie O'Leary, a female journalist who I work with here at Slate, she's the host of What Next TBD, is a longtime, eh, you know, medium-time veteran of Excuse the me. TV. <laughs> I don't know. Let's let's see how we're going to characterize it. Is a veteran of the being on TV as a woman wars or experience. Hello, Lizzie. How are you? I'm good. I, you introduced me as a female journalist. Yeah, one of these one of these women whose appearances have been commented upon. Yeah, but I want to get it right. Is it medium time, long time? You're not that long time. I mean, I guess I've been doing journalism for almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. And how much on TV? Probably seven. Okay. So you had a uh, tweet thread as as you are as wont. I, as, as, yes. yes. Okay. And part of it was, um, well, you tell me. I, you know, it's not, it's not my story. It's to not tell, your story it? to tell. I moderated an event a little while ago and it was, you know, a conversation about something I know stuff about. So it was about an hour long. It was with someone who had written a book with all these different things about sort of the future of technology and venture capital and all this stuff. And at the end, um, an older guy who was actually one of the event hosts, it was someone I had to be nice to, Yes, came up and said, yeah, yeah, it was great. You know, you have a voice for podcasting, but man, you do have a face for television. Mm -hmm. And it was just this moment where I was like, oh, dude. I know you think you just gave me a perfectly, perfectly acceptable anodyne compliment. Mm -hmm. And yet I was just standing there like, I am so friggin' tired of this. I just spent an hour plus like demonstrating to you that I'm a highly competent professional. And that was how you could think to compliment me? It's not the best compliment. In it's fact, not. it's not really a compliment. <laughs> But there is, and I want to ask you more about yeah, this, yeah, but yeah, there's, yeah. there's this one nub of the discussion that I think is very interesting, and I can't, I haven't figured out how I thought about it. Most of the nubs, I figured out how I thought, like, don't harass people, don't make them feel bad. Here's another one. If you say something that you think is nice, and that person doesn't take it as nice, it's probably on you, not them, especially if you're wading in with how someone looks. I try not to talk about how someone looks, but, though I but love I talking about people's, like, uh, weird things that people wear. Well, that's fine. <laughs> but I would, I would say that... One of the reasons I didn't say, like, oh, you know, I, I, that's kind of a weird thing to say or thank. I mean, first of all, I didn't know the guy. Yeah. Second, I was sort of in his space. And third, I have done that. Uh huh. And it causes. Oh, you mean you've said not a cool thing to say, bro? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To multiple people. And it, it really can go very badly. They yeah. get mad. Yeah. In a way where it's often just like, oh, it's not worth it. So here is the interesting and to me unsettled nub. Okay. We're talking about, especially Laura Bassett saying that, you know, Chris Matthews came up to me in the makeup chair and said things like, that's a beautiful red dress. Are you going out after this? I said, I wasn't sure. He told the makeup lady, well, take that makeup off her face. We don't want her talking to a guy in a bar like that. I guess you could say maybe like the guy at your conference, maybe he didn't mean anything actually flirtatious or anything by it. And they do glop on a lot of makeup in the makeup chair on TV. Fine. If he said something that made her feel uncomfortable, she literally is a guest on her show. It ends there. But we are part of what we're talking about. If we were to make the rules, don't make someone feel uncomfortable. Don't say something demeaning. 
don't make a woman feel like her appearance is her value. So here's where it becomes a little interesting to me. On TV, on TV news, your appearance is part of your value. In fact, uh, um, with some TV stations, it's a great part of your value. And doesn't excuse someone for making someone feel uncomfortable, but I do think it's a little different from other workplaces and other walks of life. Hmm. That is interesting. It's very complicated. I think you could say a couple of things to it. I think you could say overall appearance is part of value in television news. Yeah. Sure. But if you were to graph out where appearance is a larger part of value, boy, there are a whole lot of old dudes on TV with hair that is like the weirdest color I've ever seen or who look like droopy dog or have all sorts of straight... Appearance doesn't seem to be a big part of their value. Well, a couple things. I think in our society, we could both agree that women have to deal with the fact that their appearance is more important to the way society values them than men have to deal with that. But I do also think that we're talking about a field where journalists like Laura Bassett and others will say, I'm a journalist, I'm an expert, but you're a good-looking expert, but you're also a pretty expert, but you're an expert who just draws ratings, and part of the ability to draw ratings is your appearance. And so it's a little different in TV, I think, than in other walks of life. Oof. You don't think so? I think it is a little different in TV than in other walks of life, but I think it's highly gendered. I think if you look at... The print reporters who get, for example, TV contracts to, yeah. to go on and opine, the women are better looking than the men. Well, I think so, but I think women are better. I can never judge. I think women are better I'm looking than men. I'm a straight woman. I can tell you <laughs> that the women are better looking than the men. They certainly put more time into the but, makeup. But show. also, it, I will tell you from being on the other side of it, how unbelievably frustrating it can be when what you look like, particularly in the moment of something big and important, yeah. really shouldn't matter. I think about covering the BP oil spill, which I did for a big chunk of uninterrupted time. And there was one day where I got a really important internal document. It was a log from the rig that showed how a whole bunch of things went down. It showed who made what call. I mean, this was a document that nobody else had. The first piece of feedback I got after going on the air with this was, can someone do something about her hair? Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, I'm standing on a— From your bosses, not from Twitter. No, from my bosses. I'm standing on a beach in Louisiana at 6 in the morning. It's 100 degrees. Probably not. And, like, really? That was the takeaway? Like, I get that it's a visual medium, and I get that there's sort of a basic understanding of, like, I'm going to go on TV. I'm going to try to actually focus things on me, which maybe means not looking like a pencil troll. Yeah. But that is such a frustrating thing to come up against. And it's one of the reasons that, like, people have asked me, do you want to do television again? I'm like, not really. Yeah. Not really, because it wasn't worth it. Like the guy who who had the little quote-unquote compliment for me, it's just this tiny thing that over time chips away at who you are and what you're doing. And, you know, it... it may not be a big deal, but it's the drop, 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 drop. Oh, look, the rock is different because water's been pouring on it every day. Do you think if television news were organized more justly, all right, but it was still, a you know, a capitalistic enterprise mm-hmm. that depends on ratings, how different would what television news looks like and what the people on television news look like, how different would it really be? I don't think you have to look that far. I mean, I think CNN International is actually a pretty good example. Uh It is still a capitalistic enterprise. 
the correspondents just look more like reporters. Yeah. You know, they're 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 out there doing the thing every day. The BBC, you can say, sure, we gets a lot of it's gets its money from license fees and the British public. But again, those are television correspondents who are being reporters. They are not there to be, you know, perfectly quaffed. But I'm just saying that if there really was a way to stock television with a bunch of people who don't have to primp to that degree and have to be scrutinized, which would be a good thing if it were possible, and it can be as remunerative for the people who own television networks, it would have been done already. Or PBS's NewsHour would be getting such great ratings that that would be ripped off. I, You know, yes and no. I mean... I would never underestimate the degree of sort of tail-chasing fear of a television executive. Mm -hmm. Like, one of the things that I've always been fascinated by is as Fox started to do really well, you know, commercially, in ratings, etc., a lot of other networks tried to be like Fox. Not necessarily with the political point of view, but the roundtables, the set dressing, the graphics. If you go back and look at them... They're modeling themselves on a certain kind of visual thing because maybe they're not comfortable jumping into that ideological pool, but they want, they want the flashy stuff that kind of goes along with it. So I, I do think there is just a lot of fear and kind of we don't want to stick our heads up that comes with being a, a TV exec. But I also think like, you know, most of these people also when you think about it are white, like most of them have a certain look like This isn't just about gender. There's just like a very mm, narrow view of what someone should be on television. When you're dealing in a visual medium, there'll be a lot more talk and banter about the visual context of a person, how the person looks. Sure. And and that, just if there's that much talk, I have never felt harassed or anything. But, you know, when I go on TV, I've had men and women say things like, oh, you've lost weight, or oh, you look good, or oh, that shirt— is bad or that shirt is good, things like this. Uh, oh, your, you know, your baldness doesn't seem so shiny today, things like this. And I suppose I've never gotten any of that on ra- in radio or podcasting. Oh, well, no, but have you gotten you don't speak with authority or your voice sounds young? Yeah, um, and I think that, okay, wh- so that's an what, interesting question. What about question. Uh, up talk yes. or vocal fry? Well, I think that I've learned to put aside most of that, but since this is our job and our profession and we are using these instruments to communicate— It's the equivalent, sometimes I think it's the equivalent of not liking a really good television newscaster because of her haircut. There's some of that. But sometimes I think it's the equivalent of not really liking an article you're reading or a print reporter because of their syntax or because of their sentence structure, because of it doesn't have to be a grammatic mistake because of the way they use language isn't, you know, pleasing to your sense of aesthetics or artistry. This, and this is how, this is something like vocal fry, or if I were to engage in, if I were to say less when I mean fewer, people could listen to that and say, well, that's not exactly correct. This is the only instrument I have to communicate. I think that's true. And you and I have both worked in public radio, and we know that there is no one who likes to correct your grammar more yeah. than an irate, you know, longtime donating member of a public radio right. station. However, I think the data has shown and I'm going to say this, and of course I don't have it with me, but I would I would love to compare, you know, the inboxes of your generic public radio dude and your generic public radio woman. I'm pretty sure you'd get a lot more voice complaints right. 
about the woman. Yeah. If the woman engages in up, up talk or has but people would say I, But people would say, I have up talk and book. I don't. I have a, actually a remarkably deep voice for a woman. Yeah. It's, it is remarkably deep. It is deep. remarkably it's deep, It's like a Michael. bassoon across from me. But, okay, like wait. The, but I get a lot of complaints about my voice, and it's well, normally it's about— It's just annoying. Yeah. <laughs> it's the New York accent, and why isn't this guy on sports talk radio and things like that? And I don't take it to heart. It doesn't strike at my gender or self-identity or worth or make me wonder, oh, will I keep this job? Maybe not. Yeah. But but that may also be the difference between the drip, drip, drip and not. You right. know, if if every other interaction you're having just cuts you down a tiny bit, yeah. or, then that, you know, the comment about your voice lands differently. Right. Or if, like you, I was literally assaulted or whatever the version of that would be. If I was literally called into a boss's office and said, if you don't fix that, dropping your R's at the end of words, we're going to fine you, then I'd be incredibly sensitive yeah. to it. Yeah. Can I tell you one other thing about television? Yeah. You ever had a stalker? Uh, no. No. They, yeah. Yeah. You get people who like you a little too mm-hmm. much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does it get, do most female journalists have experiences that get serious and possibly criminal? I can't, I can't say most. I did. Yeah. I had one that like involved security and, and calling people and, you know, calling his office's security and all of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean it. And I'm I'm one like sort of middle of the rank, random TV correspondent, or I was then. Like the people who are high up, they have lots. Oh yeah, but every man I know on TV who's engaged in opinion making has gotten death threats. Hmm. But maybe, but it's not stalking. But like not someone who shows up outside your office, like hello, I love you. That would be bad. Yeah, it's not fun. <laughs> That's not good. I will say this, and this is. I guess the thing that I've come away from so much of this with, I had a big conversation with my dad, who's mm-hmm. 82. Mm-hmm. He was like, well, come on. I mean, people say things. And I said, yeah, they do. But like, have you ever been in a situation where the first thing that is noticed about you in the office is not your work, is not your output, is not how hard you're trying, is not, I don't know, whatever it is, it's the way you look. Yeah. And he said, well, I, I guess not really. I said, yeah, so for me, every single job I've ever had and every single, you know, sort of man in a position of power I've interacted with is pretty much that gets noticed. And it just adds up. Yeah. Well, we can't leave it at that. Even here, it's late. <laughs> uh, not here, it's late, actually. If the answer was yes, we'd have cut that yeah. out. <laughs> but we'd no, have taken it to HR. <laughs> but but I but I will say no, but also I'm forty four now. I'm uh-huh. a lot I'm a lot more likely to just like tell someone to F off. Uh-huh. You have you you've found your power. I yeah, and I don't care as much. Yeah. That's it. That there's a there's a secret right there. <laughs> Lizzie O'Leary is the host of What Next TBD. It's on every Friday uh, in your What Next feed. Thanks, Lizzie. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Mike can get it done. Michael Bloomberg ended his campaign today, having spent $600 million, or as a percentage of his wealth, about $90 to the median U.S. household. He went out with these words. As the results come in, here's what is clear. No matter how many delegates we win tonight, we have done something no one else thought was possible. To spend over $10 million per delegate. Bloomberg is projected to garner a little over 50 delegates. So it's about $10 million per delegate. Quite a price point. 
a delegate, you can earn a delegate with about 2,000 votes in some of these low turnout caucus states. And by that measure, Bloomberg is paying $500 per delegate. If you do the very basic math of dividing his total ad spend, uh, $600 million by the 1.7 million votes he got, comes out to about $350 a vote. I know what you're thinking. Damn, I'd have taken that deal. Where do I sign up for my 350? It is not on offer anymore. You may also be thinking, what a waste of money. Only it wasn't. And I'll tell you why. In fact, I won't. Elizabeth Warren will. Another ran for president. (laughs) Guess he thought it would be cheaper than a wealth tax. (laughs) She is right. Bloomberg got his money's worth. See, Warren's proposed wealth tax, 2% of wealth, times Bloomberg's 50 to $60 billion, means he would be paying a billion dollars a year for the first few years until his wealth either spent down or he raised it via investments or interest. So he'd be paying, let's say, a billion dollars a year. To spend $600 million, not to pay a billion, that is a brilliant business decision. Sure, Warren might not have been able to actually get her tax enacted. And furthermore, sure, Bloomberg spending $600 million on the Mike Bloomberg for President campaign as a means of thwarting the wealth tax might have been as effective as buying the Buffalo Sabres and naming them the Buffalo Bloombergs as a means of thwarting the wealth tax. But you know, I bet he does not regret the undertaking. And since most of his friends would also be subject to the wealth tax on individuals worth more than $50 million, I bet his foray into national politics earned him great social standing among his circle. Social standing you can't put a price tag on, or you can, and it's $600 million. Also, last thing, now that When you turn on the TV, the TV, and every third ad isn't about how Mike can get it done, we as the American consumer will be so much more informed. It turns out Wendy's now has breakfast items. Who knew? And we'll get to find out if the guy in the middle seat is still pissed off at Captain Obvious. And uh, what should I do if I have moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, given the caveat that people who are allergic to Otesla should in fact not try Otesla? As far as Elizabeth Warren, as of this recording, she was still weighing her options. I think she'll probably drop out because I thought the only reason she would stay in was a chance to be on stage for the March 15th debate so she could once more decapitate Mike Bloomberg, screw his head on backwards and ask him to watch his back. Now that Bloomberg's out, what's the fun for her? So I think between me saying this and you hearing this, she just may leave. She did have a number of great ideas. She also had a number of bad ideas and made some good arguments and made some bad arguments. By sheer volume, she had more ideas and arguments than anyone in the campaign. But in her uh, pre-Super Tuesday rally in Los Angeles, she did make a case against Bernie and Joe Biden. And I happen to disagree with the assessment. From the start of this campaign, despite so many great candidates with so many different perspectives, voters were worried about beating Donald Trump. And they have been told there are only two lanes, only two choices. And now we find ourselves barreling toward another primary along the same lanes as 2016. One for an insider, one for an outsider. So the outsider, he's the candidate who has been in Congress or the Senate since 1990. And this is 2020. That is 30 years, right? I know the other guy's been in the Senate since 1972. But uh, this is the inside-outside dynamic she speaks of. And the insider, which would be Biden, if you're doing the math, is criticized in ways that I don't think are particularly fair. Here, here's Warren again. I respect his many years of service. But no matter how many Washington insiders tell you to support him, 
nominating fellow Washington insider will not meet this moment. Nominating a man who says we do not need any fundamental change in this country will not meet this moment. And nominating someone who wants to restore the world before Donald Trump, when the status quo has been leaving more and more people behind for decades, is a big risk for our party and for our country. One, more Washington insiders endorsing him. That doesn't describe the moment. Because his biggest endorser was Pete Buttigieg. Remember Buttigieg just a couple months ago standing on the stage and making the case against Warren that she herself was a Washington insider, a case that he was positioned to make since he clearly wasn't. If you remember, I actually criticized Buttigieg's argument then. I said it was pretty threadbare. And I'm going to criticize Warren's argument now. The whole, you can't be an insider and have experience. That's a disqualifier. Terrible argument. I hate when you make it, but if you're making it as a two-term senator, it also becomes a little hypocritical. It is true, the second point she made, Joe Biden is essentially a restoration candidate, and Warren truly does disagree with him. But that argument, he just wants to restore normality, that seems to be an electoral winner. Lastly, she's been saying this about both Biden and Sanders. This crisis demands more than a former vice president who is so eager to cut deals with Mitch McConnell and the Republicans that he'll trade good ideas for bad ones. And this crisis demands more than a senator who has good ideas, but whose 30-year track record shows he consistently calls for things that fail to get done and consistently opposing things that nevertheless he fails to stop. I don't think, I think it's unfair to say Biden is terribly eager to sell out to Mitch McConnell. Certainly as vice president, he was really frustrated by McConnell. There would be no reason for him to defer to McConnell if the Democrats control the Senate. Biden has legislated in a bipartisan manner, which voters like, but it's a caricature to say that he'd rather be bipartisan than effective. In fact, when he was bipartisan in the past, a fairly different past, it wasn't to be ineffective. It was because it was the only way to be effective. The Sanders critique, I think, is a pretty much fair one. But listen to what she's doing here. She's telling supporters, hey, dream big, but not so big as to be impractical. But don't be so practical as to give up the dream. So for a candidate who was deriding lanes just a little while ago, she has defined a soda straw thin one for herself. In the end, Mike Bloomberg was and is a guy with a lot of money. Let's hope he spends it to be Trump. Elizabeth Warren was and is a woman with a lot of ideas. Let's hope the next president is smart enough to utilize the best of them. It is fairly certain neither one will occupy the White House, but acting selflessly in this moment could nudge the party to a place where the occupant is at least one of their own. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi is the GIST's associate producer. You know, if Mike Bloomberg's copious ad buys deny her knowledge of a Toyotathon or a Buick sales event, she's going to be pissed. She needs to know about these things. Daniel Schrader produces the show. He has seen Anna Kendrick shilling for Hilton Hotels and Frito-Lay, but wonders if he's been denied any further knowledge of her utilizing mid-tier brands that in real life Anna Kendrick would clearly never use. The gist. We are down to Bernie versus Biden, and this one's for all the marbles. Or in Biden's case, however many is left. Umpur de Peru and thanks for listening.